The Tom Woods Show, episode 1326. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're like me, when you criticize the Federal Reserve, you get all these lackey-style responses. Why the Fed has made the economy more stable. You don't want to go back to the 19th century, do you? All kinds of arguments like that. Well, you can blow those and others out of the water with my free ebook, Our Enemy, the Fed. Grab it at OurEnemyTheFed.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here, talking to Bob Murphy, our old friend today, about a topic that I've had a lot of demand for. And it has to do with a question of money management, how to manage your money in light of your knowledge of, in other words, in a way that's informed by and compatible with sound money, liberty, even Austrian economics. And that is a system that's become known as the infinite banking concept. And Bob has written quite a bit about this and spoken quite a bit about this. And so I've had people saying, why don't you have Bob come on and talk about this? The book that we're going to be discussing is it's co-authored, Bob Murphy, Carlos Lara, Nelson Nash, The Case for IBC, How to Secede from Our Current Monetary Regime, One Household at a Time. Well, that's a pretty tantalizing subtitle. Remember, of course, Bob is my co-host on the Contra Krugman podcast over at ContraKrugman.com, where we critique Paul Krugman every week for our once-a-week podcast. Of course, we co-host the Contra Cruise named after that podcast, together. And I hope we will see you on that this year. That is going to be a blast. Bob and I are going to be debating each other with Gene Epstein moderating. And you'll only be able to see that if you are on board the Contra Cruise. So ContraCruise.com also. Bob holds a PhD in economics from New York University. He's taught economics at the college level. He's worked in the private sector. He's, well, right now he's at uh, Texas Tech University. He's the author of a zillion books, as you know, um, most recently a book called Contra Krugman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. You can find that at ContraKrugmanBook.com, but he's got a whole bunch of work he's done, both scholarly and popular, that uh, you'll enjoy taking a look at. But anyway, I have all the information about Bob, his blog, his just everything, all his background, all that stuff will be on the show notes page, along with the book we're talking about, The Case for IBC. TomWoods.com slash 1326. Bob, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Tom. All right, we're going to talk about something I have been told for years I need to talk to you about by a, a really, really committed group of people. And yet the vast bulk of people listening will have no idea what it is. So it's kind of, it's everybody's lucky day, right? The folks who've been demanding it and the folks who don't know anything about it, they're going to learn a little something today. So let's start off with a little bit of your own background, how it is that you came to be involved in this. I mean, you're an academic economist and you bring that knowledge to your treatment of, of this. But, you know, it's just fortuitous that you happen to come across Nelson Nash and Carlos Lara. So give us the necessary background. Sure. So I was in Nashville. And at that point, I was technically in the private sector, just doing consulting work and whatnot. But I had written a bunch of study guides for the Mises Institute, one of which was the study guide to Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State. And then I get an email out of the blue from this guy, Carlos Lara, who's using my study guide to help him understand Rothbard because he was working on a PowerPoint presentation showing commercial bankers how fractional reserve banking worked. 
And so that, and he just wanted to make sure, you know, he was getting all the details right. And then he said he saw on the back of the, you know, study guide that I lived in Nashville. So he said, hey, why don't you come on over? So that's how it started. And so this is guy, Carlos Lara, and he was, uh, you know, he's older than me, a, a businessman. He'd been in um, consulting for decades. He He worked with business owners, particularly ones that were in financial distress and helped them get out of it. But he just had this love of Austrian economics that he discovered in the 80s. Um, you know, when there was the crash in 86 in particular that he, Carlos went to figure out what, where did this come from? And he discovered Austrian business cycle theory and just said, yeah, this, this makes the most sense of it. So we, we became friends. And then at one point early on, he hands me this book and he says, Bob, you know, get a chance, look at this and tell me what you think. And it was this book, Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash. And I looked through it and my reaction and, and what it was, it was showing you how you could use a dividend paying whole life insurance policy or a system of policies to become your own banker. And what Nash meant by that was cash flow management. So in other words, instead of you being reliant on outside lenders, when you have to buy a car or your daughter's getting married or sending your kid to college, any of these big ticket items, instead of doing the conventional American thing where you take your savings out of your paycheck every month and go put it in the 401k or whatever, where it's effectively in prison until you're 55 and a half, Nash was saying, instead of doing that, and then you got to borrow money from outsiders to fund these expenses, he said, become your own banker. So build up wealth in one of these dividend paying whole life policies or a system of them. And then you effectively borrow against those things in order to fund these purchases. So that's what Nash meant by becoming your own bankers, you know, take control of your, your own financial destiny. You're not dependent on outsiders. It's very calm and peaceful, you know, all sorts of things. So I'm reading it. And my initial reaction was to say, yeah, this guy sounds like a great guy. This Nelson Nash, and you could just, he's got all sorts of quotes from the Bible in there. And he's a, he's a fan of Austrian economics. Nelson Nash had actually been mentored personally by Leonard Reed back in the day. Like that's how Nelson came to know Austrian economics. Big fan of the Mises Institute and the Foundation for Economic Education. So just a great guy, salt of the earth kind of guy. But I just thought, no, there's like five things wrong with this book, Becoming Your Own Banker, I thought. And then the more, but I didn't just give up on it because Carlos really thought highly of it and I didn't want to, you know, offend him or anything. So I was just kind of real gentle in my initial feedback. And then just over time, the more I was talking to Carlos and the more I was reading about it, I realized a lot of my initial doubts or skepticism came from the fact that I actually didn't understand how whole life policies worked, that I really just knew what, what term insurance was. So a term policy, like, you, you know, you pay money for... Uh, insurance for a given term, five years, 10 years, what have you, whereas a whole life policy means the things in force as long as you keep making the premium payments for your whole life. So they're a different animal and I didn't really understand how they worked. So a lot of what Nelson was doing in his book to me was a black box. I didn't really get it. So that was part of it. And so what I originally thought was, oh, there's like five things just totally wrong with this after a while. I was like, oh, I, all right, that one thing I misunderstood. So, there, But still, there's four things just that are fatal to this guy's thesis and then, of course, well, there's three things. Okay, two th And then by the end of it, I was like, man, this thing is obvious. How come everybody's not doing this? A bunch of idiots, right? So it was that kind of progression. And ultimately, I went down to Birmingham, Alabama, where Nelson and his uh, son-in-law, David Stearns, are presented. I just got more and more into it. And where we are at this point is the four of us are the board of what's called the Nelson Nash Institute. I helped design a training program for financial professionals. Carlos and I have written two books together, um, including this latest one, The Case for IBC. So that's the the quick version of how I, as a sort of academic economist, got sucked into this world just because it 
it made a lot of sense. And I think for people from an Austrian perspective, uh, you know, this, this resonates with them, you know, with their views on the, what the banking system does in terms of the boom bust cycle and whatever. This is a really you know, a great thing that hits on all cylinders. When I first looked into this, I didn't really take the time to concentrate and focus as much as you did because you clearly were captivated by it and the arguments just began, as you say, okay, there are four problems with this, then three, then two, then one. All right, but with me, it was, okay, I don't immediately understand this and I just haven't got the time right now. I'll come back to it later because what it sounded like the system was saying was if you're ever in the need for credit or you let's say you want to buy a, you know, whatever, any large item, you could go to the bank and then you'll have to pay a lot of interest or you could use this system and you're going to be saving yourself a lot of money. But what it sounded like it was saying was if you have saved up enough money to go buy a car, then yeah, you can borrow from what you've saved and buy that car and then repay yourself and it'll be much better. And I thought, I I guess I'm just not following this. That Well, yeah, obviously if I had all that money saved, I, I could go take it out and I could think of that as being like a bank, but I just didn't get, and I said, I don't have the time. And it was my own blockheadedness as to why I wasn't getting it. It was it was not the fault of the presentation. I was a blockhead. I'm just going to tell people that right now, okay? <laughs> so what I want you to do is explain basically how this works. Now, in order to do that, you're going to have to talk about whole life, um, a whole life policy and what that's all about. But why is the system not what I just said it was. Well, if if you just go ahead and save the money in advance, then you can be your own banker. Well, yeah, I guess I could, but seems like that's not practical. So what was I not getting in my blockhead days? Okay, sure. And and that's not terrible of a reaction for you to have. I mean, you probably could have persisted with it, but, but yeah, that, I mean, your, your initial reaction, you're right. And that is part of it. So some of, you know, Nelson Nash's wisdom you know, he talks in his book about the importance of capitalization. He says, like, if you're going to start a new business, you know, some businesses you capitalize for many years before you take off and that kind of thing. So, yeah, part of what is going on here is if you first save up for something before you buy it, then you're going to have more wealth than if you, you know, buy it ahead of time, you know, living with, so living within your means. So that is part of it, but but that's not all it's saying. Okay, so... So I'll, I'll give you that. It's not that what you were putting your finger on, Tom, was was wrong. It's just that wasn't the end of the story. So you're right. In order to then really get into it more, I'll have to take a minute to explain to the listener what exactly is a whole life policy, just so they understand the mechanics of this. So what happens, just the, the nature of the contractual relationship between the customer and the, whole, and the life insurance company, like with a term policy, let's say you have a 10-year term life insurance policy, so that's saying there's a given death benefit. Let's say it's $500,000. And so the life insurance company charges you a fixed premium. Let's say every month you make the same monthly payment. And then if you happen to die within that 10-year span, the life insurance company sends $500,000 to whoever your beneficiary is that you named. If you go the full 10 years, though, and you don't happen to die, you're still alive at the end of that, then the policy you know falls away and that's it. And so effectively you paid your premiums that whole time. And then you have nothing to show for it and you move on. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. So it's sort of analogous to like renting an apartment. You make your monthly rental payments to the landlord and you get a flow of shelter services. But then once the contract's over, you go your separate way and you don't have any ownership stake or equity in the apartment unit. You were just renting the flow of housing services or shelter services. So that's kind of like what a term insurance policy is. A whole life policy in contrast, what the contract says is, 
this is in force for your whole life, hence the name. And so it is always renewable, if that's the way you want to think about it. There's no fixed term after which it expires. Strictly speaking, what happens now in ones that are designed in the U.S., at age 121, if you're still alive, they just go ahead and give you what the, quote, death benefit is, even though you're still alive, All right? So that's the way they build these things actuarially, is they assume the thing completes at age 121 if you still happen to be alive. So think of it, if, if imagine like a 30-year-old who takes out a 10-year term policy, that's in force until age 40. But if he takes out a whole life policy, that's effectively in force for the next 90, what, what, 91 years. So it's like a 91-year term policy from the point of view of the 30-year-old. And so that's partly, by the way, why the premium, which is the same, you know, month after month or year after year on one of these things, is going to be a lot higher for a whole life policy of a given death benefit than for a term policy for the same person of the same death benefit, just because, you know, just like you could see a five-year term policy versus a 10-year versus a 15 versus a 20, the premiums are going to keep going up because the older you get, the greater the mortality risk that you're going to die. So likewise, if it's going to be in force up through age 121, the insurance company knows it's paying out on a whole life policy. So that's why the premiums are higher. There's nothing, you know, shady going on there. That's just actuarial uh, common sense. Okay, so you've got this whole life policy. So from the life insurance company's point of view, they're taking premium payments from you and they know that this thing is like a ticking time bomb to them in terms of the liability on their balance sheet because at some point you're going to die or even if you last to 121, they're going to have to pay out. So to them, it's just a matter of when. And so they start taking your premium payments and they go and invest those payments in assets that are accumulating on their books. And so that's the way to maybe to think about what's going on from the life insurance company's point of view and so one element of this is suppose you get 10, 20 years into one of these ter- whole life policies, you've been making your premium payments faithfully, the life insurance company has this growing stockpile of assets that are in effect backing up your policy. I mean, that's not the perfect way to think about it, but it's okay for our purposes here just to give the general idea. And then what if you need money? So one thing you could do is you could just surrender the policy. You could go up to them and say, look, you know at some point I'm going to die and you're going to owe me a big amount, like 500000 What if we just forget that? You're not on the hook for that anymore, but I need cash right now. Can you give me 80000 It's like depending on how old you are, you know, that might be the actuarially correct thing to do, like a spot payment to get you to walk away. So that's what the cash surrender value is. So unlike a term policy, which doesn't have this equity building up, a whole life policy does. So going back to the real estate analogy, this would be like you own a house that you initially, you know, had a mortgage on and every monthly mortgage payment, your equity in the house is growing. So that's maybe one way to think about a whole life policy is every premium payment you're making, your equity in the policy goes up. Whereas again, with a term policy, that's more like renting an apartment. So the cash surrender value grows with every payment you're making as time passes And so that's one feature of the policy. So that's the sense in which people might say cash builds up in the policy. That's what they're talking about. But then the last curveball I'll throw you this. Don't worry, folks. This is, hang in there. If you went to be this far, this is the last step you need to understand Nelson Nash's idea. Well, what happens if the policyholder needs cash, but he really likes having this life insurance policy in force, right? He doesn't want to have to surrender this policy he might have been building up for 20 years just because he happens to have a cash crunch. 
And so another feature of these policies, and this is all contractually spelled out, this, you know, this is all guaranteed contractually in the terms, is the life insurance company can say, we will give you a loan with your cash surrender value of your policy serving as the collateral on that loan. And so the, the, the terms are very generous, that the interest rate is, is modest and the payback schedule is completely flexible. And they don't check your credit. They don't care what your income is. They don't ask you what you're going to use the money for. All you do is call them up and say, how much do I have available to borrow? And they check what your cash surrender value is. Oh, you can borrow up to this amount if you want. And that, that's it. That's all they ask you. Because again, they, the, the reason for that, the reason they're so, quote, generous, and they don't mind giving you a policy loan, and they don't ask you any questions, run your credit or anything, is that they themselves are guaranteeing the collateral. Okay, because again, it's the collateral in your life insurance policy, or it's, it's your life insurance policy's cash surrender value that's the collateral for the loan. And so the life insurance company, from their point of view, making a policy loan to a customer is the safest possible investment, even safer than treasuries. Because you know, Uncle Sam could default in theory, but the policyholder can't avoid repaying the loan because they can surrender the policy, in which case the life insurance company pays itself back first, or the person could die. And so like if, you know, the, the company owes $500,000 to his beneficiary, oh, but wait a minute, there's an $80,000 policy loan. So they first pay themselves back and then they send the 420,000 net out to the beneficiary. So that's, those are the mechanics of it. So, and that's been around, you know, for more than a century, just a real conservative, stodgy old financial product, whole life, real boring. And what Nelson Nash realized, he had this epiphany was to say that if you built up a sizable cash surrender value, then whenever you needed cash, you just borrow against that thing. And so this is the asset that serves as like the headquarters for your money, if you want to think of it that way. Or Nelson has another book called The Warehouse of Your Wealth or For Your Wealth. And that, that's what he means. So you're still allowed to go out and buy, you know, make investments, buy real estate, buy gold, buy silver, invest in a small business, do whatever you want, buy stocks. It's just Nelson thinks you should flow everything through one or more of these properly designed whole life policies to be like the headquarters for your money. So that's what he means by becoming your own banker. So way back now, Tom, to your question about buying the car, one quick example. So even for somebody who is smart and, and saves first, who's, you know, in other words, who, who has the wealth to be able to just write a check for the car, Nelson just shows in his book why there's advantages to doing it, you know, the IBC way, the infinite banking concept way, rather than like having a sinking fund with bank CDs, certificates of deposit. In his examples, you know, partly it's interest rates that drive that. But for our purposes here, let me just mention the control factor. And because I, I don't want to overwhelm people. I know it's a fire hose of information. Last thing I'll say on this is when you're buying a car, if you do it the conventional way, so you have plenty of assets like in your 401k or your IRA or whatever, 403b if you're a teacher, what have you, You've got plenty of wealth, but it's locked up in these so-called tax-qualified plans that you can't really touch until you retire. And so your money's in prison. So then if you want to go buy a car, you go to like some outside lender. So, you know, they, they finance the car and you're making your payments. But if something happens, if, you know, you lose your job or you get sick or whatever, and you fall behind on your car payments, ultimately the repo man comes and takes your car, right? So the car was the collateral on that loan they were giving you. And so there's the, there's the stress there. You're always in the back of your mind. You know, if you fall behind, there goes your car. Whereas when you finance it the way Nelson Nash recommends, among the other benefits is 
you're technically borrowing money from the life insurance company. It's your life insurance policy that's the collateral, and you're paying cash for the car from the dealer's perspective. And so in addition to possibly getting a better deal because you're, quote, paying cash, is the fact that your car's not the collateral. So if you fall behind on your, quote, car payments, because really you're just sending money to the life insurance company to knock out that policy loan, nothing, you know, nothing happens. It just means your loan stays on the books longer than it otherwise would have, but nobody comes and takes your car. So to the extent that you can wean yourself from these outside lenders and have a growing one or more uh, policies designed in this proper way for use as IBC policies, it's just a very peaceful way of life. And so I'll stop there because I know you probably got follow-up questions, but that's the, the main element of it. I know from Nelson's point of view, for him, it's more an issue of, you know, you're in charge of your own destiny and you're controlling your cash flow. But, you know, other people, you know, CPAs and whatever can look at it more in terms of cost benefit analysis. And, you know, it, it, it works on those metrics too, but I'm just saying the spirit of Nelson saying becoming your own banker, I think that's the way he's looking at it. All right. Well, even after that explanation, I think some people may be inclined to have the reaction that I think is probably somewhat common, which is, uh, this sounds like a great idea. If only I had more money to put into it. If only I had more money, I could start doing this, but I don't, so I can't. Is there a response to that? Well, yeah. One response is go get another job, you know, (laughs) (laughs) go get a side hustle. Listen to the Tom Woods show. (laughs) Um, Okay. What's part two? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm partly trying to be funny, but also it's like, yeah, just, you know, Hey, (laughs) get up, bucko, clean your room. And uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to be Jordan Peterson. I forget others, his other catchphrases. Go slay the dragon. Um, oh, yeah. So so what's funny is, and you're right, I have heard that, as I hear two different types of responses for people who want to explain why, oh, yeah, I can't see anything that's really wrong with that, but it doesn't work for me, and so I don't need to go do anything about my life, is I hear young people saying, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm living paycheck to paycheck right now, Bob, and there's, you know, I don't have any extra money to go buy one of these big policies or, you know, the, the amount of money I could devote to this right now is so little it would be years before this thing even made a difference. So I'm not going to bother starting. Or I hear older people who encounter this and they'll slap their heads and say, oh my gosh, I wish I had, you know, heard about this 30 years ago back when I was in better health and I had my whole working career. But at this point, you know, I missed the boat. It's too bad, but maybe I'll tell my kids about it. And so it's just kind of funny how everybody can, you know, always come up with these reasons why it's not for them. So here I'm not going to be able to give, you know, too much in terms of particulars, but the generic answer is a properly designed whole life policy for IBC purposes looks different depending on the individual. So yes, the way it would be structured for someone who's young and just you know has a few extra dollars each paycheck to be able to put into something, you design it one way. Whereas an older person, you know, who has a lot of other assets, there's ways to sell some of those off and redirect the funds to you know, bulk up one or more of these whole life policies designed a certain way relatively quickly. And so there, there's just different ways of doing it. And me, you know, saying it right now, I'm not going to be able to convey it. But but yeah, sure. It's if somebody doesn't have a big income such they can't afford this, then I, I'm not, I wasn't being facetious that, yeah, you, <laughs> I think a bad economy is coming and you really should get multiple income streams going, you know, regardless of what you think about IBC. Uh, but beyond that, I think a lot of people, when they say they don't have any money left, it's partly because they become locked in this standard way of living and financing things where, you know, they get their paycheck, the, you know, the government takes its cut and then, oh, I make my mandatory contribution to my 401k or whatever, because Dave Ramsey tells me that that's a no brainer. 
And then I got to make my house payment. I got to make my car payment, my boat payment, my credit cards. Duh, 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 duh. And then when all is said and done, I have, you know, $30 left. And so part of what Nelson's you know saying is that you would have more money left over if you didn't owe this to all these outsiders. And so, yes, if you're already, if you already dug yourself into a hole, you can't just flip out of it overnight, but it's partly realizing that what you're thinking of as your disposable income is probably a lot lower because you're making all these quote payments to outside lenders. There are a few other points that I think maybe we want to clarify and objections that we might want to anticipate. First of all, whole life insurance has a terrible reputation for some reason. Uh, For instance, they say you shouldn't buy whole life. You should buy term and invest the difference. And others have said whole life is like the worst possible investment somebody can make. I don't quite get that. So maybe you can clear that up. Sure. And yeah, that is is a big part of it. And it's funny because I lived in Nashville. Well, I told you that I was in Nashville when I met Carlson. Dave Ramsey, that's where he's from. He actually was going to my church. And I, uh, he one time waved me and let me get, leave the church parking lot ahead of him. He, he didn't know who I was, but it was you know, a nice Christian move. Um, and so, yeah, his big thing, he hates whole life policy. He says anybody who, you know, invests in this, you're just crazy. And so that a lot of these financial gurus had these very quick, glib, alleged demonstrations showing how what they call buy term invest the difference is obviously superior. So for your listeners who don't know what that means, I'll, I'll be real quick here just to explain, you know, what the claim is. So again, for a given death benefit for the same person, the quote on, let's say, a 20-year term policy is going to be lower, you know, cheaper than the premium you would need to pay on an otherwise identical whole life policy. And so, as I said, there's nothing mysterious or shady about that. It's that a whole life policy is a much longer term policy, if that's the way you want to think about it. So, of course, if there's that built-in renewal option, it's going to be more expensive because it's more valuable to you as the consumer. And so what Dave Ramsey and others would say is, okay, so for, you know, every month when your premium payments do, if you have a term policy, you've got money left over, right? Because you can get the same death benefit coverage, whatever, $500,000, let's say, for less money in terms of the premium. So whatever you had earmarked and you were going to go put in this whole life policy in order to get the death benefit coverage right away, but also to have this you know, accumulating cash surrender value that you could borrow against and whatnot – Ramsey's saying, why don't you split it up? Why don't you split your life insurance and investments into two separate vehicles? So you pay, you know, you shop around, get a really cheap term policy. And then with the difference, meaning how much you're saving each month because the premium's lower on the term policy, go put it into a mutual fund. So that's the mean by buy term and invest the difference. And then Ramsey will, you know, take some statistics about, oh, you know, from this time period, the average mutual fund returns 10.6% annually, da, 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 whereas the uh, you know internal rate of return on a whole life policy was only 4.2%, or I'm making these numbers up, but you get the idea. So it's he's trying to show you can get the same death benefit coverage and you get a higher rate of growth on your investments if you buy term and invest the difference. So he's saying, why wouldn't you do that? You'd be stupid to try to buy one product that kills two birds with one stone. It's probably going to be mediocre in at least one of those objectives. So that's the the claim. And so just very quickly, I could just say that it's comparing apples to oranges. So it's just it's just wrong. So I'm I'm not saying you're always a fool to buy term, but what I am saying is this glib demonstration that seeks to show you that buying in term is always superior, that that's nonsense. So just real quickly, a couple of the problems with those glib demonstrations. One huge thing is the term policy expires. 
And so, yeah, what happens after year 20, if you bought a 20-year term policy, is that term policy expires, whereas the whole life policy stays in force. So that's one reason that they're not apples to oranges. I mean, Dave Ramsey could likewise, quote, prove you should never buy a 20-year term policy because it's always cheaper to buy a five-year term policy instead. And he could say, buy five and invest the difference to blow up anybody who thinks you should buy a 20-year term policy. So obviously that would be a silly thing to say. You could say, well, no, those are different animals and you know, there's benefits to having life insurance coverage in force. So that's one main problem. But another huge one is when he's trying to show people, oh, just put your money in these mutual funds in order to get the big numbers, like to show, oh, historically, this fund, you know, way outperformed uh, the cash value buildup in a life insurance pot, is he's looking at a mutual fund that at least has some exposure to the stock market. And so the problem there is the stock market is volatile. So yeah, it's not shocking that if you're willing to put your money in something that's riskier, you might be able to get a higher expected rate of return. But on the other hand, in like in 2008, your portfolio might go down 40% in a year. Whereas the cash that's building up in a whole life policy never goes down, right? Once you're the life insurance company, you know, if they send out dividends and things and your cash value grow, goes up, then it can't go down again. So it's a staircase thing. And, you know, there's, there's contractual guarantees about the minimum that's going to go up. And then if they have dividends, then it goes up even more. But the point is that they're just totally different things. Uh, it would be like if, if Dave Ramsey said, oh, historically, stocks outperform bonds. So therefore, you'd be a fool to ever buy bonds. And I hope everybody can see why that would be a stupid thing to say. So likewise here, just to say, and there's other misleading things too about the statistics and they don't look at the, you know, the fees and whatever. But I'm saying even on its own terms, these glib demonstrations just are comparing apples to oranges. In my own investigation, when I was looking more into this, that was one of the things that made me start coming around as I saw all of these like quick drive-by attacks seeking to demonstrate how, quote, you know, stupid whole life insurance was. You know, they, they were totally, they, they were either misleading their readers or they were just ignorant. Either way, it's not good. Uh, one last thing on this quick point, Tom, is that after the 86 uh, Tax Reform Act, a lot of... Uh, advantages for real estate investments and trusts and things were taken away. And so the real estate market crashed. And so investors were looking around for where should we put our money? And a lot of them started putting their money into single premium whole life policies, right? So they would write one big check just to buy, you know, and had the thing locked up and said, say the insurance company, we're just giving you this one big check. How much death benefit do we get? And they'd let the thing ride because there's tax advantages and they can borrow against it and all this other stuff I've been t telling you about. And it was such an issue that Congress actually amended the tax laws to limit the amount or, or the speed with which you could fund some of these big policies. So, you know, say what you will about it, but it seems like if this really is such a stupid thing to do, it's odd that Congress had to amend the tax laws to stop rich people from shoving so much money into these types of policies. All right, Bob, two more things I want to run by you. Uh, one's an objection, another objection. Somebody might say, even if price inflation is modest, it accumulates year after year. So, you know, 2% in a year is not a huge deal for a lot of people, but it accumulates and, that, and that's a problem. So why would I want to be involved long-term in a dollar-denominated asset when I know that the dollar, even if it's not going to have some dramatic crash, is going to be worth less over time? Sure, that's a great objection. And I think it's like why Peter Schiff isn't a fan of, you know, bonds and life insurance and stuff for similar reasons. 
and I share the Austrian, I mean, as you know, Tom, I actually was quite concerned publicly about the effects on the dollar from the various rounds of QE. So I'm very sympathetic to this. So here, let me just be clear. So I'm speaking on behalf of Carlos Lara and myself on this one, that we have a three-pronged strategy for people, like how to be defensive into what we say is weather the coming financial storms. And I would, for more, I'd point people to our website at laramurphy.com. Lara is Carlos Lara's last name. So it's L-A-R-A hyphen murphy.com. And you can see we still near the top of the page. We've got our, our video presentation. So, but the idea is we're not merely telling people, oh yeah, go ahead and just start doing IBC. We're also saying you should start stockpiling gold and or silver. And we also think actual cash in case, you know, there's a banking problem. So from, from our perspective, what you're doing is you're, you're building up defenses against all these possible scenarios or contingencies. And the the problem though, is just gold per se is not a solution in and of itself because there's different characteristics. And this kind of gets into the, the thing about the so-called perfect investment, which we, we might want to talk about in a minute, but the, the idea being that you're going to still need dollar denominated assets. You're still going to have dollars flowing through your possession if you're living in the U.S. for sure. And so, you know, you're going to owe, you, you got to pay your utilities. You got to go to the grocery store, make your car payment or whatever, <laughs> or, or buy a car if you're doing it the Nelson Nash way. But the idea is you're still going to be using dollars. And so to the extent that that's going to happen, or if you're working at a conventional job, your paycheck's going to be coming to you via dollars or in the form of dollars. So the IBC policy, it's not that you're investing in cash per se, it's just more of a cash flow management system. And so, yes, if you are concerned about the dollar crashing, then yeah, you want to get inflation hedges and go ahead and, you know, maybe that means real estate, maybe it means Bitcoin, maybe it means gold and silver in your vault at home. And so IBC gives you the freedom to go get those things. Whereas if you had had your paycheck always going into a 401k, you actually would be less able to go buy a bunch of gold coins. Whereas if you've been practicing IBC, you've got this nice cash surrender value sitting there that you could borrow against and go get whatever, $30,000 worth of gold coins if you want to next week. So, so that's the idea that it's Nelson Nash is not saying to people, I think life insurance is a great asset and you should have more of it. It's more he's saying, whatever you think about your asset portfolio mix, go ahead and flow your dollars through this type of policy or a system of policies so that you're, you're your own banker. That's the idea. There is a section in the book that talks about whole life. Well, it talks about what would the perfect asset look like? And then it lists all the qualities that it would have. And then it goes through and lists potential assets and measures them against these qualities. Um, so I wonder if you could say something about that, because I found that section very convincing. Sure. So this, where the book came from, I don't think we've said this uh, yet in this discussion, Tom, is uh, Carlos... Nelson and I and David Stearns was behind the scenes kind of helping us get everything ready and doing the logistics of it. And, the, uh, you know, a lot of the preparing the PowerPoint slides and things. So the four of us were going around giving this road show to the public, telling them about IBC and then also some Austrian business cycle stuff. And I realized at one point, over time, you know, we'd come up with a new thing to show people or Carlos would come up with a new rhetorical flourish or a new motivating example. And over time, these would accumulate in such that I realized, hey, guys, we've got like a lot of material here that's not in any of our written stuff. And so why don't we codify this and get it down? So that's where 
the case for IBC came from is we were basically trying to take the seminar that we were given for the general public and boil it down into a book form or a booklet form. Um, and so what you're referring to, Tom, is, yeah, Carl's has this thought uh, experiment where, and, and he adapted this. So this is when he would be meeting with individual clients or, you know, potential clients or business owners, things like that. And a lot of people would ask him and say, hey, Carl's, wh- where do you put your money? And he found that if he just said right out of the shoot, oh, I put it into a whole life policies, they would, you know, spit their drink out or whatever. And what? And because that's, they've all been taught. That's a crazy place to put your money. So what Carl's would do instead is he'd say, well, you know, before I answer that, let's just walk through this. Why don't you just imagine, let, let's design the perfect investment. You know, and that's how he would motivate it. And so just start throwing out some attributes or some characteristics that you'd want in a perfect investment. And so the person's like, oh, okay, like I would want a high rate of return. So he, you know, he has like a, a whiteboard. He says, okay, he writes it down. What else? Uh, you know, tax advantages. And he goes, okay, how about tax free? And the guy's like, oh yeah, yeah. And so he just starts listing all these things, you know, liquidity, control, uh, privacy, um, creditor protection, you know, so if, if creditors, you know, you owe them money in other areas of your business, your personal finances, they can't just come take this asset, that kind of thing. Um, and then you know, at some point the person says, oh, you know, I want this to be reputable, right? Like this isn't something illegal because this is something to be too good to be true. And so Carl's laughs. Like, okay. Yep. And he writes down reputable. And so he goes through and lists us. It generates an income. It's not correlated with the stock market, right? All these different attributes of what the quote perfect investment would look like. And then when it's all said and done, Carl says, you know what? You almost just described a dividend paying whole life insurance policy. And the person's kind of floored. And so where he's coming from there is a whole life policy actually is very good on just about every one of those criteria and where it's lacking. It's not that it's abysmal. It's just not as good as some other alternatives, right? So a whole life policy admittedly doesn't have a high rate of return, you know, internal rate of return in terms of the buildup of the cash value if you stay alive. But by the way, if you take out a policy and die the next week, there's a huge rate of return, right? But in general, the expected rate of return is not higher, you know, in a whole life policy compared to the stock market or something. But the point is, once you take account of the fact that it grows income tax-free, if you do it right, then it's like, you know, that's not that bad. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's better than like a money market fund would be. And people have no problem putting their money in a money market fund. No one says, oh my gosh, that's a terrible investment. You know, plenty of people put you, because why? Well, because it's so safe. Okay, so that's the idea. And then I, in the book, you know, we sort of go through other asset classes and just show that some of them are great on a, a few of those criteria, but they're awful on other ones. So for example, gold, yes, gold, you know, and one of the criteria was inflation protection. So yes, if inflation goes through the roof, you know, by which I mean price inflation, then yeah, having gold and silver, you're going to be glad you had that as compared to a bond, let's say, or even a, a, a whole life policy by itself. Okay. But gold and silver don't throw off an income. They just sit there. And so you can't just have a hundred gold coins in your vault and live off that. They don't generate an income the way like rental property would, or the way a whole life policy does that over, you know, especially as it, as it gets bigger or, you know, as you, as you keep paying into it over time, it starts throwing off dividends and it has internal buildup that's guaranteed. So that's the sense in which a whole life policy generates an income too. Um, you know, real estate, yeah, there might it might be a good inflation hedge, but it's volatile, right? It could, it could drop on you. And whereas again, a whole life policy, that doesn't happen. So stocks, again, those are good and certain, but they could, they could be volatile. So there, there's different pros and cons of various asset classes. Nothing is actually perfect. 
And the point is just um, a whole life policy, even not even looking at IBC, but just looking at it as like an asset class is like a Swiss army knife, or I called it the, the Captain Kirk of investments, right? That and from the old Star Trek series, you know, Spock is really smart and strong and Scotty's really good at engineering and McCoy's really good at, you know, medical stuff. And Captain Kirk, he's kind of pretty good at everything. Like he's not the best in any one thing, but he's the captain because he's kind of good at everything and he doesn't really have any major weaknesses. So to me, you know, I don't know if that's <laughs> good or bad. Maybe for some of your older listeners, they'll get that analogy. But I'm saying a whole life policy, far from being like, oh, the stupid thing. Why would you ever put your money there? No, it's actually pretty robust under various scenarios. And last thing I'll say, Tom, is during the 1930s, the Great Depression, when thousands of commercial banks were failing, a lot of Americans to get cash turned to their whole life insurance policies because the life insurance companies didn't go down nearly to the same extent that the commercial banking sector got crushed. And so the life insurance sector was much more stable and solid and dependable even during the Great Depression. So again, that's something that, you know, Dave Ramsey's glib little demonstrations doesn't take into account. Well, you know where you won't hear glib, oh, wait, I'm promoting the wrong thing. We're supposed to be promoting your book, uh, co-authored, The Case for IBC, How to Secede from Our Current Monetary Regime One Household at a Time. I'm linking to it, of course, at tomwoods.com slash 1326. Are there any other links you want to give people? I mean, we did mention Laura Murphy, but if you want to add that again, I'll also put that on the show notes page, but if you want to mention that again, feel free to do that. Yeah, so the, let me just mention some of the things we're doing. So yeah, Carlos, Laura, and I, have a podcast that if you know if what I'm saying here intrigues you, you might want to go check that out. So all this stuff is available at lauramurphy.com. That's L-A-R-A-Murphy.com. And you can see links to all this stuff uh, that we're talking about. The pot we have a podcast, a bunch of blog posts. There's an FAQ, of course, about you know, to, to take you into various uh, levels. And then there's a bookstore for, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff here that I realize to a newcomer this is overwhelming, but I would just say if you're curious, yeah, please go to lauramurphy.com to find out more. All right, Bob, thanks again. I guess I'll be talking to you pretty darn soon as we record Contra Krugman for this week, but uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Tom. Always a pleasure. All right, folks, of course, if you're going to be thinking about money and managing it, you should also be thinking about uh, building up the old number of income streams you got going there. And here you have the greatest invention of the history of mankind sitting there, and 99.9% .9 of the world is, in effect, using it for cat videos. You should be using it to generate some, uh, some smackers for you. And I will show you the most common ways people do that in my little ebook on precisely this topic. So check that out. It's free, and it's really darn good, by the way. It's got really good, actionable information based on my own experience. So it's over at pathstoincome.com. And if you ain't got that yet, then shame on you. Make 2019 different and go pick that up at pathstoincome.com. I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time.